for turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. And just before we get into the message, I don't want to take too much time, but I want to tell you about a series coming up called Real Christianity on April the 28th. Be in prayer for that. As I mentioned earlier, um, it's going to be a wonderful series as we start in, on April the 28th. And really, it's kind of our summer series. We're going to have some small groups centered around group discussion about the sermon each week. And uh, we're having a meeting with our small group teachers tonight. I'm excited about that. And so I hope you'll participate in that. It's going to be a wonderful study together. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. We conclude our series today called Believable, How Christianity is Both Rational and Wonderful. We have looked at so much truth in this series about how we can better defend our faith. And it was such an encouragement to my heart this morning when I heard um, someone here in our church share that they have a boss at their uh, job who shared with them just out of the blue this week that they're an atheist. And I said, that's awesome. Not that they're an atheist, but that they would share that with them. And now there's an open door for her to go back to her boss and we gave her a book off the table that I'm praying her boss will read. It's called uh, Unbelievable, Why After Ten Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian by Justin Brierly. So could we just have a moment of prayer for that person right now? If there's anything that I hope this series does is it gives us a burden for those that don't know Jesus and that we can better share our faith. So let's just have a moment of prayer for this person. Father, I pray for this boss of one of our church members and, and the job that she works, I, I pray that you would be with this relationship and that as um, this person gives to her boss this book, that it would meet a softened heart to the gospel, that even the title on the book might get her attention and captivate her to open the first page and read it. And Father, um, I pray that as we conclude this series today, that you would just help us to be better prepared for how to answer why we believe what we believe, but also that it would give us a burden to actually have unsaved friends. That we wouldn't just stay in our little safe bubble, but that we would be challenged to make an impact in our community, know people who do not know you, and um, pray for them, witness to them, share the gospel with them, live the gospel before them. Father, um, I pray that you'd help us today as we wrap up this series. Thank you for the opportunity to go through this series. I pray that it's helped uh, the sincere seeker, the underground skeptics that maybe have been in church for a long time and had very serious questions about their faith, and then for all of us that we would be better prepared believers as we share our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Well, we're here in 1 Corinthians 15, and today there's no better way to wrap up this study than on evidence for the empty tomb and why we believe that as Christians. Ultimately, that is the bedrock of our faith, and that's what we're about to read here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's going to make the argument for why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of all true Christianity. So let's read it together, starting in verse 3. It says, For I delivered unto you... First of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, 
and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, some have died. After that, he was seen of James, then all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me, Paul speaking here. He was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul is addressing this portion of this letter to the church of Corinth, saying, "Um, Guys, I get word that you're saying that there's no resurrection? Hello? So he's kind of entering in now to a back and forth with them, reasoning with them. Verse 13, But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then, you're, then our preaching is vain. It's worthless. It's empty. And your faith is also empty. What's Paul saying? He's saying the bedrock of your faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb. Verse 14, yea, and we are also found false witnesses of God. That's so important what he says there. He's basically saying that if Christ be not raised, then you're saying that over 512 people are lying because he just listed a group of eyewitnesses that had witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And these were mostly, if not all, they were all Jews who would have seriously believed the Old Testament law up until the time of Christ, of course. And one of the major sins for a Jew was to bear false witness. And he's saying that if you're saying there wasn't a resurrection, you're calling us false witnesses according to the law. Verse 15, of whom we've testified that God hath raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, he's referring all the way back to Adam. I can't wait for next week. I'm going to basically share with you the entire story of the Bible. I know you're going to think, wow, that's like a five-hour sermon. I promise you it's not. We're going to have a scripture sermon that goes from creation to the resurrection and the restoration. And it's, and it's going to just be the word of God. So I hope you'll be back for Easter Sunday next week. It's going to be a unique time of worship next week. So he's referring all the way back to Genesis here because he says, For since by man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. He sums it up. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters who claim the finished work of Jesus for the salvation of your soul, do you believe that this morning? Say amen if you do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Be with me in these moments as we look at your word here, as we pull truth from 1 Corinthians 15, as we look at four undeniable historical facts that any serious historian must consider and wrestle through as they think about what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago 
when on a Sunday morning, women were the first on the scene, and they noticed the tomb was empty. And an angel said, fear not. You seek someone dead, but he's no longer dead. He's not here. He is risen. Bless this time as we study your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A survey, a recent survey of British Christians conducted by the BBC. You can see this there in your handout. I encourage you to go ahead and pull that out and follow along with me in the introduction. And then there's some blanks for you to fill in as well. Um, a, a recent survey was done by, uh, of British Christians. It was conducted by the BBC and revealed some startling facts. Catch this. Over 30% of those surveyed who claimed to be Christians did not believe in life after death. That's odd. You claim to be a Christian, but you don't believe in an afterlife. Hello? Uh, have you read the Bible lately? It talks a lot about the afterlife. Additionally, it wasn't 30%, but about 25% of those survey Christians did not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. What an astounding statistic. I would love to sit down with these Christians, these so-called Christians, and ask them why in the world they identify as Christian if they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It is absurd. It makes no sense whatsoever. Those Christians should be reminded of some of Paul's words that we just read. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is worthless. That's what the word vain means. Empty, worthless, pointless. You're yet in your sins. You see, it wasn't just enough for Christ to die for our sins. He was, according to Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. So he was delivered up for our offenses, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to us through his resurrection. Why? Because he would be able to be a priest, a high priest, with the power of an endless life forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I get glory bumps just thinking about that, of what Jesus did through his finished work in ascending and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Paul makes this argument here. If Christ is not raised, listen, basically what he's saying is, if there's no empty tomb, you have an empty faith. If there is no empty tomb, then we have an empty faith which is pointless and hopeless. He says that in verse 19. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we're all men most miserable. We're just telling ourselves a fairy tale so that we can get to sleep at night. We're just telling ourselves something that, okay, it might make us feel good during a hospital stay, but there's nothing beyond this life. Folks, Paul really makes the argument quite clear. If Christ be not raised, then we have an empty faith, a hopeless faith, a pointless faith. You see, it is the resurrection alone that gives us the hope of immortality. In fact, all throughout this chapter, we don't have time to read the rest of this chapter, but if you read it later, Paul is talking about immortality and how we're going to get a new body, a resurrected body, just like Jesus did. He's the first fruits of them that slept. And we'll go to the end of the chapter uh, at the end of our sermon today. But Paul's making the case that it's the resurrection of Jesus alone that, that gives to us the hope of immortality and a life beyond this one. And it's the only hope we have of ever seeing those that we loved in this life ever again. So is the resurrection just a wistful hope so? Or is our hope grounded in actual events of history? That's what we're going to explore today. You see, the answer of the New Testament to the uniqueness of Christianity 
is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so Paul here in this 15th chapter of his letter to the Corinthians makes this claim basically that all of Christianity hinges on the historical truth of whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. So to Paul, the historical resurrection of Jesus wasn't merely a belief or facet of Christianity. It was the basis and foundation of all of Christianity. I think we've made that point. It is central. It is core to everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then what are people doing going around worshiping a teacher who's been dead for almost 2,000 years? That's basically the argument he's making here in this passage. So, for Paul, this was an historical reality. He was placing his faith in a historical event, and that's what we want to look at. But I want to give you this uh, quote from R.A. Torrey, a famous preacher, a uh, great scholar and theologian. He said this about the resurrection. He said, Let any man of a legal mind, any man that is accustomed to and competent to weigh evidence, and that's what we've been talking about in this series, weighing all this evidence for the existence of God and the truthfulness of biblical Christianity. He says, Yes, any man with fair reasoning powers and above all with perfect candor sit down to study the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and he will become satisfied that beyond any uncertainty, beyond an uncertainty, that Jesus really rose from the dead as is recorded in the four Gospels. Many people have done this through human history just to look at the historical evidence. And at the end of that journey, they have come away believing in Jesus Christ, believing in the resurrection. In fact, a book we have out on our table called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. There's also been a movie made about it. That would be a great movie to watch this week in connection with the celebration of Easter. Um, he did the very thing that R.A. Torrey is saying. He was a writer for the Chicago Chronicle or the Chicago Tribune and went on a two- or three-year journey and became a believer in Jesus. And so with that said, I want to draw your attention to four things that we see here in 1 Corinthians 15 that are what I would call irreducible historical facts that any serious historian must explain. There is so much evidence for the empty tomb. We don't have time to go through it all today. We are going to, in our small group discussion after the service here, so if you'd like to join us for that, we're going to talk about some more proofs, powerful proofs of a risen Redeemer. But as I tried to think through and weigh through everything, here's what you would call the minimal facts approach to the resurrection. There's a lot of other facts, but these facts any historian looking at ancient history has to deal with. And this might be a great approach for some because these are just minimal, basic facts that you have to wrestle with as you explore ancient history and what supposedly happened close to 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, all right? I've got some stuff to share with you today that I don't know if it'll blow your socks off, but as I was studying it this week, I'm just like, wow, how many of you have ever heard of the Nazareth inscription? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Goody, I can't wait to share that with you. It's amazing. And I know, you're like, this guy is crazy. But it's so amazing what you're going to hear today. So, four irreducible historical facts that any serious historian must explain. I hope you'll take notes. I think this will help us all as we go into this wonderful week as we celebrate the truth of Jesus rising from the dead. So, as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But we want to seriously study it now, the historical facts. All right? Number one. The first historical fact, irreducible fact. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth was given a proper burial following his resurrection by Joseph of Arimathea. 
Jesus of Nazareth was given a proper, proper burial following his resurrection by Joseph of Arimathea. If you look back at the creed that Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians 15, we talked about this wonderful creed. We'll mention it some more here in a little bit. But notice that one of the statements in this confession of faith is that Jesus Christ was buried. Now you might say, that's not an important detail. It actually is for people who were crucified. The reason is, is most criminals who were crucified in the first century were not given a proper burial. Their corpses, I mean, I don't want to get too graphic this morning, but crucifixion was not uh, as humane as the electric chair is. And we know how that's been argued, whether it's humane or not, and I'm not here to debate that this morning. But crucifixion was on a scale ten times worse than the electric chair. We're talking about agony for hours. We're talking about slow suffocation. We're talking about that when they came around after you had hung there for hours, struggling for every breath, and you still weren't dead, then they took a hammer and broke your legs, bashed your head in, or stabbed your side with a spear and pierced your heart. And what they would do, and they would also let the birds and wild animals come and feed on you while you're still alive. So most crucifixion victims were not buried, they were thrown in the trash heap. So this is very important because Jesus was crucified and he was buried. And what's so amazing about this story is the Bible gives the name of the person who buried him. Why is that significant? Because Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. Well, who was the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the governing body who had sentenced Jesus to death. And do you think that if these disciples were making up a story about Jesus being crucified and rising again, they would want to give any kind of credit to a member of the Sanhedrin? You bet your bottom dollar they wouldn't. This is why this is so fascinating. These are irreducible facts of history that we must wrestle with. So it says there that he was buried. But look at Matthew 27. I kind of got ahead of myself a little bit. Look at Matthew 27, verses 57 through 59. It says, When the even was come, when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea, a man named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And so as you study out the historical facts of both Jesus' burial, most scholars, um, over 75%, do not argue the fact that Jesus was buried in Joseph's, uh, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We're not talking about just saved scholars. We're talking about liberal scholars, unsaved, saved, all across the spectrum. Most scholars, uh, over 3,400 of them, agree that Jesus was given a proper burial by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. This is attested in independent early sources. And as I mentioned, one of the great criteria that you can tell whether the New Testament is telling us the truth is what they call the criterion of embarrassment. Why would the disciples give any credit to a man, of jo a man like Joseph of Arimathea who has been researched? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Yes, he was a disciple of Jesus, but all of Jesus' other disciples, the one who were supposedly writing this story, where were they during this time? They were in hiding. They were cowardly. And so this fact must be wrestled with. It must be weighed so if you were making this story up, why in the world would you present a member of the Sanhedrin, the very institution that sentenced Jesus to death, 
as the one that would be remembered as taking care of the body of Jesus after his crucifixion for all of time. I mean, why would you put that guy as the one unless it really, truly happened, you see? Irreducible facts we have to wrestle with. So that's number one. Number two, and this is where we really get into it. Number two is Jesus' tomb was discovered empty by a group of his female followers on the Sunday morning after his crucifixion. So there's two things in this statement that you've got to address. Number one, you have to answer the empty tomb. And number two, the female followers. So number one, the tomb was empty. Back to the passage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Matthew 28, verses 5 and 6 says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye. Just a little aside, I love both the beginning of Jesus' life and the beginning of Jesus' resurrected life. You have an angel telling witnesses, Don't fear. Don't fear. You remember the angel who uh, appeared to the shepherds that night in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks there at Bethlehem? The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And now at the resurrection, you have an angel saying, Fear not. I wonder, was that the same angel proclaiming both at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life and the beginning of Jesus' eternal resurrected life? Don't fear. You know, that is the message of the gospel. There's no more fear. Jesus has taken away your fear of death, your fear of sin, hell, and the grave, and he's given to you courage. He is the true and better son of David who courageously entered into the valley of the shadow of death, defeating our greatest giant, our greatest enemy, and through the true and righteous and ever-living son of David, we can have courage. So the Bible says he's not here. The tomb's empty. He's risen, just as he said. Come see... The empty tomb, the place where the Lord lay. So the tomb was empty. Write down this name, Dr. Gary Habermas. He's written several books on the historicity of the resurrection. Dr. Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, if you're taking notes. And uh, search his name on Amazon. Several incredible books on this issue. One of the world's foremost experts on the resurrection of Jesus. He surveyed over 3,400 scholars in this field. And he finds that upwards of 75% of them agree that the tomb of Jesus was indeed empty. Now that's, of course, there's a lot of theories as to why they think the tomb was empty. But they all agree that the tomb was empty. Even very skeptical scholars. Do you remember Dr. Bart Ehrman that I mentioned to you for several weeks now about how he tries to question everything about the Bible? Even the skeptical Bart Ehrman said this. Look, he said, we can conclude with some certainty that Jesus was in fact buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb, and that three days later the tomb was found empty. This is a person who's not even a believer in Christ who says you cannot deny the historicity of these events and these facts. You have enemy attestation to these things being true. What does enemy attestation mean? It means that whenever you're reading something in ancient history that a supposed enemy said about another person. You can pretty much believe that to be true, right? They're, they're most likely telling the truth, especially if it's a fact that would not give the enemy any help in their argument, meaning an empty tomb. Um, how many of you are familiar with this phrase? Let me illustrate the empty tomb like this. How many of you are familiar, familiar with the phrase, a skeleton in the closet? Raise your hand. All right. 
We're all familiar with that phrase, a skeleton in the closet. Um, I'm not sure if the metaphor got started with this famous story, but how many of you have ever heard of um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's work, The Telltale Heart? Raise your hand, all right, any, any literature fiends out there? Um, I'm not sure if this is where that phrase got started from, but what happened in that story of The Telltale Heart? What happened is, is that the murderer who had killed this man, he hides the man's body in the floorboards of his house. Of course, police officers arrived the next day to investigate the screams of the murdered man as he was dying. Some folks had heard that, evidently. But they didn't see any evidence in the house of foul play. And so they have a casual discussion with this man, the narrator of the story, who also happened to be the murderer. So the murderer who's telling the story, also the man who's telling the story also happened to be the murderer. And as the officers converse with the unnamed narrator, the man's guilt manifests so that he hears the heartbeat of the man that he had murdered. And that heartbeat, as you remember the story, gets louder and louder throughout the story. Finally, just before the police officers are about to exit without really any suspicion at that point, the guilty man breaks down. He confesses his deed and he tells the officers where the body's hidden. So the metaphorical skeleton in the closet is revealed to be the actual corpse hidden in the floor beams. Here's the point of that story is this. If skeptics of the resurrection of Jesus are correct, then the disciples in the first two centuries, or the, excuse me, the first two decades, so 20 years after the, resurrection, after the death of Jesus, literally had, quote-unquote, a skeleton in their closet if Jesus did not rise. Look at verse 6. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. What's Paul saying here in this confession that Jesus had risen from the dead? He's literally saying, guys, if the tomb's not empty, none of this could have got started. And listen, Jesus did rise from the dead, and we are going on the record, in a, even in a court of law, he would argue, that we are, we are witnesses of this fact. So the tomb was empty. I love what Tim Keller said about the empty tomb in this respect. He's another great writer, preacher, who wrote on this issue of the resurrection. Look at what he said about this. He said, No one in Jerusalem would have believed the preaching of the disciples for a minute if the tomb was not indeed empty. Skeptics could have easily produced Jesus' rotted body. Also, Paul could not be telling people in a public document, like 1 Corinthians 15, that there were scores of eyewitnesses alive if they were not. If the tomb of Jesus wasn't truly and factually empty then the Jewish officials could have easily opened the tomb and demonstrated to all that Christianity had a great skeleton in the closet, a great hidden secret, namely that their founder did in fact die and stay dead as well. But at no point in their claims that Jesus had risen from the dead could these enemies ever produce what? They could not produce a body. They could not produce that. Now, of course, there's been several people in recent years, and of course, keep this in mind, the name Jesus, the name Mary, the name Joseph, those are very common names. And so there's been people that have tried to say, well, this bone ossuary was, was so-and-so, but none of that's ever been proven. They could never produce a body. And of course, we know that the tomb was empty. Why? Because the very enemies of Jesus concocted the stolen body theory. But I can't wait to show you the biggest piece of evidence for why the stolen body theory makes no sense. Um, 
But look at this, Matthew 28, 12 through 15. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. You know, the soldiers who were supposedly watching Jesus' tomb and anybody who messed with the tomb was under threat of capital punishment and death if they tried to remove the stone, these soldiers. And so the Pharisees said, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Do you see what they were doing? Because these Roman guards were under the threat of losing their lives at this point. So the Pharisees offered them money and witness protection to make up a false story that the disciples came and took him. You know the biggest problem with the stolen body theory is? What was left in the grave? The grave clothes. Do you think that a group of cowardly disciples who were in hiding because of fear of losing their own life would go to the grave trying to invent a resurrection story when they didn't even understand that he had risen? In fact, when the women came and told the disciples that, that, that he had risen, they looked at them like they were a little bit cuckoo, cuckoo. Do you think they're going to come take the time to unwrap the body from the grave clothes and steal a naked body with the threat of Roman guards slicing you and dicing you? Absolutely not. That evidence doesn't hold up in any court. I don't care what kind of story you try to concoct. But here's what's even more fascinating. We know that this lie, this story, was purported and propagated because of the Nazareth inscription. What is the Nazareth inscription? In 1930, a tablet was discovered that appears to have reached Germany in the late 1870s, 1878. It had Greek writing on it. And if you Google this later, you can see that. It had Greek writing on it. And this tablet was from the town of Nazareth sometime just before 50 A.D. They've dated it. Just before 50 A.D. It is currently, if you ever happen to be skipping past Paris, you can go to the Louvre and look at the Nazareth inscription. Here's what the inscription says. This was written by Claudius the Caesar of Rome at that time. Claudius ruled and reigned from about 41 to 51 A.D. Here's what Claudius said, the Caesar. An edict. It is my decision concerning graves and tombs, whoever has made them for the religious observances of parents or children or household members. Now that's fascinating because Jews were known as having family tombs. So he references religious observances of parents or children or household members. Oh, and I think I've got this quote up here. There we go. You can read along with me. That these remain undisturbed forever. But if anyone legally charges that another person has destroyed or has in any manner extracted those who have been buried or has moved with wicked intent those who have been buried into other places, committing a crime against them, or has moved sepulcher sealing stones... You know, stones that sealed the tombs like the, like the grave of Jesus. Against such a person, I order that a judicial tribunal be created, just as is done concerning the gods in human religious observances. Even more so will I be obligatory to treat with honor those who have been entombed. You are absolutely not to allow anyone to move those who have been entombed. But if someone does, I wish that that violator to suffer capital punishment under the title 
of tomb breaker. This was a tablet, a sign posted in the city of Nazareth. Now that's interesting. Why? Because Claudius didn't have all the facts exactly right. Where should the tablet been posted? Probably Jerusalem. But Jesus was from the hometown of what? Nazareth. And if you study Acts chapter 2 and all throughout the, the, uh, the disciples, the apostles preaching, they say that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Now here's what's interesting. Acts 18 too. Kind of one of these throwaway statements in the Bible that you don't realize has much historical significance when you start to find stone tablets. Look at what it says. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Now, why did Claudius, Claudius, why did he expel all the Jews from Rome? Well, you keep reading and you find out there was a Roman historian named Suetonius. And he records, catch this, he records that there was trouble in Rome during the time of Claudius over one called Crestus, Christ. So Jewish Christians evidently came to Rome and they were preaching the gospel that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. And of course, other Jews were opposing that. There was an uprising like there was in every city where there were synagogues and Jews. I mean, study the book of Acts and you'll see that. So there was an uprising, and Claudius decides to expel all the Jews over two things. Number one, this report of an empty tomb, and of course, the Jews who didn't believe the accusation of a stolen body. Thus, Claudius sends this tablet mistakenly to Nazareth, thinking that that's where this incident was happening. I don't know about you, but when you piece together the historical and archaeological details, literally, folks, the tomb was empty. It was empty. You cannot deny that. Now, you can come up with all these theories, but we've already poked holes in the stolen body theory. It doesn't make sense. And, but here's what's so crazy about this story. It rings of absolute truth because of the next thing. Not only was the tomb empty, but notice, secondly, the women, the female followers, were the first to discover this. Now, this might not sound like a big deal to you, but in the first century, let's just say that women were not viewed in high regard. In fact, women down throughout history in all kinds of cultures have not been viewed in high regard. In fact, in most cultures, they've been viewed as property, been viewed as second rate, which is so sad because what you see in true biblical Christianity is Jesus elevating the true role and value of women. And so here's what the Babylonian Talmud says about women in the first century. Praised are you, O Lord, who has not made me a Gentile, Praised are you, O Lord, who did not make me a boor. And praised are you, O Lord, who did not make me a woman. That's how they viewed women. In fact, women's testimony in a court of law, I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. Um, all four gospel accounts affirm that women were the first on the scene to witness the empty tomb. Again, if you're making this story up, or if this story had turned into a myth, yes, maybe there was a Jesus of history, but his followers several hundred years after created this myth and this story around him. If you're making the story up and you're a Jewish guy, you're not going to say women were the first witnesses on the scene. In fact, Josephus, in his book Antiquities of the Jews, in many volumes, Antiquities of the Jews says, but let not the testimony of women be admitted. 
on account of the inconstancy or the always changing nature of their testimony and the presumption of their sex. Again, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm saying this is what they believed 2,000 years ago. So if you're making up a story, trying to sell it to people, you're you know, lying, people think you're lying, you're not going to say women were the first on the scene. There's no reason. That actually does not help your story. Embarrassing testimony. Inconvenient testimony. The only possible rational reason that the Bible depicts women as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus on that Easter Sunday morning is because it factually happened. It happened. The depiction of these women as witnesses to what should be considered the most monumental event in human history of the world, it makes no sense whatsoever if the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection were somehow invented or embellished later on. In fact, if they were embellished hundreds of years after, as many skeptics claim, then why not change that detail and say, it was Peter, you know, he was the one who was supposedly brave, or it was John, the beloved disciple, or it was any other host of, you know, it was Joseph of Arimathea, you know. That would even make sense. But no, women. If the early church was simply inventing the story of Jesus' resurrection, wouldn't it have made far more sense to utilize a prominent and well-respected witness so, N.T. Wright, another scholar, said this, if they could have invented stories of fine, upstanding, reliable male witnesses being first at the tomb, they would have done it, folks. That they did not tells us either that everyone in the early church knew that the women led by Mary Magdalene were in fact the first on the scene, or that the early church was not so inventive as critics have routinely imagined, or both. Would the other evangelists have been so slavishly foolish as to copy the story unless they were convinced that despite being an apologetic liability, you know, this isn't going to help our story, saying women were at the tomb first, but they had to copy this down because they knew it was historically truthful. That's the point. This is what any serious historian must wrestle with. They must wrestle with the fact that Jesus was buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Secondly, the tomb was empty, and it was first found by a group of Jesus' female followers, disciples. And then number three, various individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Paul, on several occasions here, says, he, he lists all the people who saw him. And notice in this confession in 1 Corinthians 15, and by the way, this, this confession is amazing. If you were to read some of my writing 2,000 years from now, and you were a grammatical expert, you would be able to tell when I was talking in my modern-day 2019 tongue, and then if I was quoting Shakespeare. And I'm not going to quote Shakespeare a lot, so don't worry. Um, but, but you'd be able to tell. In a similar manner, it's not a perfect illustration, but in a similar manner, these grammatical experts have been able to tell that this is not reflective of Paul's usual measure, uh, way of writing, this passage in verses 5, or excuse me, verses 3 through 8. This is not Paul's normal way of writing. They have found over 40 creeds that the early church had memorized, and they were sharing. Why? Because at that point, they didn't have the whole Bible. Many of them were illiterate. They were unable to read. And here's what's so amazing about this creed. I don't have time to get into all the evidence. But they have literally, guys, catch this. They have literally been able to date this creed within six 
months of the resurrection. Wow. Paul is quoting something here, and, and Paul was quoting this in about 55. And so this isn't 20 years after the events of the resurrection. And notice he lists here individuals that Jesus appeared to. He lists small groups of people that Jesus appeared to. He mentions a large group that Jesus appeared to, over 500 at once. He appears to friends. He appears to enemies. He appears to family members who think he's crazy, who thought he was crazy during his earthly ministry. And that's, about, and that's someone we're about to look at. You see, the original, the, the, there's very ind- various individuals and groups that experienced appearances of Jesus alive after his death. death. Why is this significant? Because of the people that Paul mentions. Probably, and man, we're running out of time, but probably the thing that is most fascinating about this list. Notice the list here as you read that, and I'm going to highlight one name. Are you ready? And that he was seen of James. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Why is it so important that James is in this list? Because of this, John 7, verses 3 and 5 says, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. This is his family talking to him, his brothers. James is probably in that group. And it says, For neither did his brethren believe in him. And I've mentioned to you in weeks past, If one of your siblings came to you and said, Worship me, I'm God. Now, some of our siblings have said that, right? And you're like, you're not God, you're not the Messiah, you're not the Savior, Uh, sit down. (laughs) You're crazy. So the question is, what would it take for you to believe that that strange sibling, the one who never gets in trouble by his mom and dad, the one who's always reading his Torah, the one who's always in the synagogue, always doing the right thing, what would it take for you to believe that he is indeed who he claimed to be? Now, here's what's fascinating. You have this verse. Now you have a verse I'm about to show you that happened after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Are you ready? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. They were worshiping together. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Ah. So now a lot of Jesus' family has come to believe in him. I wonder what it took... To cause them to believe. Maybe seeing the resurrected Jesus. See, James, he's in this list in Galatians 2 as being one of the pillars now of the church. James was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And how are you going to start a world-shaking, changing movement in the city of Jerusalem where that's where Jesus was buried and Jews could have easily gone and said, nope, here's his body, okay, we're going to make this story up, which is not, doesn't make any sense at all. And here's the point. A lot of people die for what they believe is true. Hey, we had over 20 nuts fly planes in the building and kill thousands of people believing in what they thought was true. They thought if they killed themselves, they were going to get 70 women in eternity and live it up. They died for what they thought was true. We know it's a lie. But most people... When the rubber comes to hit the road and they're spreading a false story and they're threatened with their lives, they're not going to continue the charade. They're going to say, oh, we were just joking. 
But almost every single one of these witnesses that Paul lists in verse 15 went to the grave testifying that these things were true. So these individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus. And listen, one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is the conversion of the apostle Paul. Study his life. He had no reason. Most of these Jews had no reason. Do you realize that when they changed faith, it was like they died according to their family? They didn't live in the land of religious tolerance like we do today. They lost their, their family business. I mean, for them, being a disciple meant it cost them all. That's why Jesus was like, listen, I hope you know what's on the table here. I hope you know what you're deciding to do. Because when you follow me, there's no turning back because there's nothing to go back to. Maybe that would, maybe that would help some of us today. In this pluralistic society that we live in where anything's true and anything goes, to really have it cut dry for us that, you know what? I'm going to follow Jesus. There's no turning back because, you know what? I've cut all the cords. There's nothing to go back to. That's what these men were doing. Oh, study the eyewitnesses. Paul's basically saying, listen, if you don't believe me, go ask 500 plus witnesses who are still alive to this day. Go and interview them. And that's what Luke did. Dr. Luke, he interviewed them. That's how he came up with his gospel, according to Luke. Fascinating. But final truth, the final fact that any serious historian must rest with is this. These original disciples, who were Jews, they suddenly and sincerely became to, came to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says that God raised Jesus. He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. It says in Acts 17, 31, Because God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised Jesus from the dead. This was the disciples' testimony over and over. Now this is fascinating. Because, according to Jewish thinking, the Messiah was not supposed to be executed. According to their thinking, he wasn't. They missed Isaiah 53, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. See, to them, the Messiah was supposed to establish the King David's physical throne in Jerusalem, overthrow Rome, and establish this physical reign in Jerusalem. The crucifixion of Jesus, though, to the disciples, was a total catastrophe. Total catastrophe. It would be impossible for them to continue to believe that Jesus was the Messiah with, when confronted with the fact that he was crucified and then buried. Now, Jews had general beliefs about a resurrection one day. You find this with Martha. She's talking to Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Martha saith unto him, I know that Lazarus, my brother, shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And so, if anything, the disciples could have enshrined the tomb like they had done with King David's tomb and many others because they did believe in this general resurrection at the last day. And so they could have entombed and enshrined this tomb and taken pilgrimages to the tomb to worship it, which, in fact, that's one of the funny reasons of why they have trouble locating the tomb. We've got some ideas on which tomb it is, but they can't locate it because why would disciples go back to an empty tomb and worship it? They aren't going to treat it the same way as King David, where they knew where his tomb was to that very day. And so, in fact, that's probably what the women were doing on their way to the tomb that morning. 
They weren't expecting to, to see the stone rolled away. In fact, they, were, they had asked the question, one of the, 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 uh, the, the Gospels, they had asked the question, um, oh yeah, who's going to roll the stone away for us so that we can further embalm the body? They were going to put more uh, spices and, and embalming on Jesus' body. Why? To enshrine it so that they could go back and wait till the last day at the final resurrection when people would be resurrected. So they believed in this general resurrection, but they did not understand that Jesus would rise three days later. And he would be what he's always been and proved to be through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, one raised to never die again with the power of an endless life. And so as you think about the disciples and their sudden about face on, on what resurrection was, on what death was, when they suddenly and sincerely begin to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead, what's the answer? And then to see the power of which these men who were cowards hiding in an upper room, the, wit- the women were the first witnesses, they had to come and tell the disciples, they were slow to believe, And then Thomas was slow to believe the word of his own brothers, his own other disciples, and he wouldn't believe it until he saw it. At the bottom of your worship guide, Jesus, I uh, put the verse that Jesus, uh, the conversation Jesus was having with Thomas. He said, Thomas, you've seen me because you, or you've believed in me because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believed. He's talking about you and me if we've believed. But ask this question, what power could propel the early church into changing the world unless it was resurrection power. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, what explains the spread of Christianity throughout the known world? How was this done by the bumblers that we read about in the Gospels? The guys who were hiding, the guys who couldn't get their foot out of their mouth, they ain't going to turn the world upside down, people. But that's exactly what they were accused of doing only a few decades later. Of turning the world, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar. I wonder what decrees they're talking about. Stop perpetuating that story about an empty tomb. Stop saying that there's no king but Jesus. No, these men turned into world disruptors. Do you think that someone who had just a a vision, a a hallucination of Jesus rising from the dead, do you think someone who created a hoax around Jesus, someone who was telling a lie, would have ever gone to the ends of the earth for what they believed, losing everything that they had, probably saying goodbye to family members, knowing they didn't have Skype, Facebook, or iPhones, they would never be in communication again? Do you think they would do that? No. And this power. I mean, I liken it to the people who believe Elvis is still alive. <laughs> Anybody still believe that Elvis, uh-huh, the king is still alive? It's okay. You cannot. <laughs> Herman. Like, oh, me. Okay. It's like people who believe, and I'm not trying to be, but, but just trying to bring up a, you know, kind of a parallel here as we close. Lots of Elvis followers still think he's alive. So why aren't they changing the world? Why aren't they changing the world? They still believe he's alive. Catch this. Simple belief that a dead person is not dead is not sufficient propellant 
for world-changing exploits. I like how that writer put that. Remember, there were dozens of quote-unquote Jewish messiahs who had tried to lead insurrections over Rome. There were zealots. In fact, many scholars think that's one of the reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus is because he was looking for a political messiah. And when he finally figured it out, probably before all the other disciples, that Jesus wasn't going to do that, that he was actually going to go to the cross, he betrays Jesus. And so there was a lot of Jewish messiahs claiming to be the messiah other than Jesus in the first century. Some of them are even mentioned in the Bible. During their lifetimes, they had hundreds of followers, maybe thousands of followers, just like Jesus did. They followed their Messiah, or their false Messiah, zealously. However, after all those false Messiah's deaths, their followers disbanded and dispersed in every single case, with the singular exception of the followers of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that group saw 3,000 people saved in a single day. On another day, saw 4,000 people saved in a single day. And within the next few decades, their witness had turned the world upside down. You can't tell me that this isn't true. So, why is that a big deal? (laughs) Great! Pastor, yes, Jesus rose. What does that mean for me tomorrow and today? Here it is. Because of the empty tomb, your life and my life can be filled to the fullest. You see, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The thief comes to steal and to kill, but I've come to fill your life with my abundance. Ultimately, with the power of a new and endless life through the gift of his spirit, to live with him eternally one day, to give us this joy unspeakable and full of glory. Jesus says, I've spoken unto you that your joy might be full. And so because the tomb is empty, our lives can be full. If you're here today and you feel like you're empty, you feel like your life is kind of slogging along in vanity and pointlessness, then I challenge you to take a fresh look at the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb gives to us the context for a fullness of life. Number two, because the tomb is still empty. You know what? We're no longer victims. We're victors. You and I are victorious in the true and better son of David who descended into the grave and conquered our greatest fears. You're no longer a victim. You're a victor. Romans 8 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And then Paul lists all these circumstances that would cause us to have a victim mentality. But then he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Why? Because if you read verse 34, he ties it to the resurrection. Paul's confidence that nothing could separate him was founded in the historical truth of the resurrection. And then finally, because the tomb is empty, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, 
this comes at the end of this passage where Paul's making the case for the resurrection. He's making the case for immortality. He's making the case that it's not just in this life, but you're going to live forever somewhere. And what are you going to do with the empty tomb? What are you going to do with the claims of Jesus? What are you going to do with their eyewitness testimony of these disciples who said, this happened, it's true, will you believe it? And Paul sums it up and he says, therefore, I love it, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. This is why the resurrection matters. Because this is why the empty tomb matters. Because of this. Go back, guys, to one more screen. Just summarizing those three points there. Because the tomb is empty, our lives can be full. Because the tomb is empty, we're no longer victims but victors. Because the tomb is empty, our labor for God is not in vain and has eternal, lasting consequences. So folks, this is where we derive our power, our strength, our hope from. This is a living hope. This is a hope that changes everything about our Mondays, our Tuesdays. Every mundane day is redeemed because he has been raised. Do you see it? It's so true. May these truths lead us in praise today.